Yes, there it is. All right. Grayson's going to help us today open God's Word. So you ready? Get ready. It's going to be awesome. All right. Good morning, real life. 10 o'clock awake, semi? Okay. Okay. 8.30 was more awake. I'm surprised. Those morning people are beating you out, but... Uh, love you all a ton. So thankful to be here with you today. If you want to open your Bible to Luke chapter 14, we'll be talking, talking through there. Just a reminder, though, we're in a series about the renewal that Jesus wants to bring in our life. We're calling it a new thing. Once we choose to follow Jesus, he's going to take everything we ever knew, flip it on its head, <laughs> and say, you thought you knew this was how you're supposed to live and interact with those people but this is how it actually looks in my kingdom. That's, that can be a jarring process. That can be a difficult one for a lot of us. It's relearning everything. So the series, we're exploring these different relational spheres within our lives and how Jesus wants to infiltrate those, change the way we interact with people there, all for the glory of his kingdom and also for our better and our benefit. If you have those white cards that you got on the way in, you can see an image of this. The first few weeks, we talked about abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ is about my relationship with Jesus. Jesus needs to be at the center of everything. He wants to be there. Everything is for him. And when he's at the center of our lives, everything else is enriched. So we spent a few weeks talking about that. The next thing we talked about was the church. All of you are amazing. All of you are also crazy, right? There's this weird combination where when we're around people long enough, we recognize they're awesome, but they also drive us crazy a little bit. How do we as the church foster healthy relationships, not give up on relationships, but fight for it. That's where we've been recently, and now we're in that third, third sphere. And the third sphere is home and family. And boy, is that a big one. I think about home and family. Uh, how many of you, uh, when you think about family, you think that, oh man, that's so easy, right? So simple, so straightforward, uh, no conflict. I've got it pegged and nailed. It's easy, Easy stuff, right? Like, I'm the best possible husband, father, wife, mother, child, right? How many of you does that represent you right now? Okay, good. Good, because I'm not alone here. I don't think anyone's alone. Family's hard. And I've talked to multiple people even today about this. Family is so difficult. So today we want to explore what's God's plan for the family? What does he want to do and what does he want us to do within that sphere? Uh, so there's a guy a long time ago, we're talking about 16th, 17th century. Has anyone ever heard of Copernicus? Copernicus, vaguely familiar, right? Like way back in school, I heard his name once, right? Galileo, anyone heard of him? Okay, these are two guys, scientists. And at the time that they lived, the church had these very big beliefs about some scientific things. And the beliefs were based not so much on science and observation. They were based more on kind of their philosophies of things. And they believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And the reason why they believed that was because people have such a place of prominence in God's heart. God cared about us. The story he wrote is about how much he loves us. So of course, naturally, earth would be at the center of everything, right? Right. Makes perfect sense. It made perfect sense back then. But then Copernicus and Galileo started looking at the sky. And they started paying attention to the movement of heavenly bodies, you know, the, the moon and planets and stars. And what they started to realize was this is not true. Not only is Earth not the center of the universe, it's not even the center of the galaxy or the solar system. It's not the center of really anything. The sun was actually at the center. Well, Copernicus did a really smart thing, and he published his paper on his deathbed. Because 
After he died, there's nothing anyone could say to him. But the church received his paper, and they said, no, that is complete heresy. That is not true. Reject it. Get rid of it. Well, Galileo came along, and he wrote a paper as well on it, saying, no, 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 Copernicus had it right. And what ended up happening was they took Galileo in front of an inquisition, which is, it's like a mock trial where they've already determined that you're guilty, and they just want to know why you decided to be guilty, basically, right? It's, it's totally crazy. They brought him in front of this, just reamed him right in front of everyone, discredited him, told him he had to recant and admit that the earth really was the center of the universe, and then they banned his writings for about 200 years. Talk about a bad day, right? Turns out, guess who was right? Copernicus and Galileo. They, they had observed and recognized, no, the sun really is the center of our solar system. In Christianity, it's really easy for us to get to a place where we think something else besides Jesus is actually at the center. Whether we actually would say it or not, we act like it's true. We believe that it's true. And one of the biggest things that I see is family often occupies that place for us. Family can start to gravitate toward the center of everything. And even my engagement with Jesus is based on, well, we've got this going on and that going on. And actually, my family is the first priority. And the problem with that is, that's a lot of responsibility to put on your family. <laughs> your family cannot live up to that standard. They can't fill the void that God is supposed to fill. So today we're going to explore what is God's actual intent for us when it comes to our family. Is the family the center or is Jesus supposed to be the center? I think you know the answer, but we're going to explore this in greater depth. Uh, I want to really establish, though, what God thinks about the family. Because God does not hate your family. He actually loves the family. Psalm 127 says this about children in particular. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring a reward from him. So children are a blessing. That's actually God giving a blessing to you. In our culture, that's often not the way we view children. We think of them as inconvenient or, okay, yeah, we'll have, we'll have a, a kid, and, but our careers are still really important. And we have so many incidents of fatherlessness, and our culture is just really messed up about this. Do you know what the first command God ever gave us in Scripture was? Be fruitful and multiply. It's the very first command that God ever gave was go have kids right? Have children. Children are a blessing. Uh, Psalm 127 goes on to say, blessed is the one who has a quiver full of them, which is just a really funny image, right? God commands a blessing through your children. Another place that God's going to talk about is in the Ten Commandments, believe it or not. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Uh, It's in the New Testament, it's going to talk about this is the first command with a promise attached to it in the commandments. It says, honor your father and your mother. So as a child, Within this family relationship, I'm to honor my father and my mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. There's a special blessing and promise that God gives that comes with me respecting that relationship with my parents in a healthy way. Yes, there's a lot of nuance to it. We don't have time to go into it. But recognize that God loves the family. It's kind of his idea, right? He put Eve with Adam so they could become a family. God loves your family. But we can take it too far. I told you to turn to Luke 14, right? Let's take a look at what Jesus has to say. Uh, And in this passage, what he's doing is trying to outline what does it cost you to be my disciple? What does it cost you? And he's going to say some strong things, but we'll, we'll unpack them here. He says this, if anyone comes to me and does not, what's that word? Hate. Hate father and mother, wife and children, 
brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Uh, Anyone challenged by that? Anyone a little confused by that maybe? Right? Like, this is Jesus, right? This doesn't sound very Jesus-y. What's he talking about? Uh, One thing that is great to know about Scripture is you never interpret Scripture just by taking a verse and looking at it alone. You look at it with the rest of the Bible. And one thing that's clear is God does not want you to actually literally hate your family. What Jesus is saying, though, is what order of magnitude of affection do you have for him? When you look at all the other relationships in your life, whether that's my wife, whether that's you with your kids, whether that's your family or friends, do any of those relationships look like you love them more than you love Jesus? Does that make sense? Because really, Jesus says, I, the only way you can be my disciple is if I'm your number one love. That's the only way. The only way it works. Will you put me in that place of prominence? Or will you love other people more and hate me Notice he also says your own life. You can't love yourself more than you love Jesus, not in his kingdom. See, Jesus is, he's trying to get us to understand something really powerful. You are not the center of your universe. Your family is not the center of your universe. Jesus is the only one who deserves to be the center of that universe. And here's the amazing thing. When Jesus is at the center, everything else takes on light and beauty and meaning that it couldn't possibly have if you just focused on your family, or yourself. That's what Jesus is trying to say. And we have all these ideas about what family looks like. And I I love one of the first families in Scripture. God is looking for a partner. Richie preached on this several months ago. God was looking for this family to kind of bring his mission and his kingdom to the world. Ultimately, a family through whom Jesus the Messiah would descend. And God found a guy named Avram, or Abraham, we often call him, right? His name changes later on. He found this guy and picked him. And the question often is, why did God pick him? Well, I want to I teach you a little bit of Hebrew. It's what the Old Testament was written in. Repeat after me, Beit Av. Beit Av. One more time, Beit Av. Okay, Beit is spelled B-E-T-H most of the time, and you'll see it all over Scripture as part of words. Does anyone, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, also Beit Lechem. It's a Hebrew word that means house, Beit, and then Lechem means bread. House of bread or a bakery. Go figure that Jesus would have his son, the bread of life, be born in a bakery. How's that for cool? God knows what he's doing, right? So you see Bethlehem, house of bread. Another one you see is Bethel or Beit El, which Abraham's grandson, Jacob, ends up meeting God in this place. He's like, wow, I saw God and I survived, right? I lived. And he said, this is the house of God. So he named it Beit El, house of God. So you see this, this word show up a lot. It's about the house. Beit Av means house of the father. In that culture, in that society, the father was the one who reigned supreme in the household. It was a patriarchal society. And there's a lot of reasons why that was. One of the big ones was there was no centralized government. Imagine living in America with no government at all. Anyone can do whatever they want. This is the Wild West at this point, right? There's no government. You have to take care of your own family, your own people. And if you're alone, you're in trouble, right? Imagine being a single person in that kind of world where there are bigger groups of people who want to take, rob from you, murder you. They wander around. It, you want to be in a Beidov. You want to be in the house where this, there's this father who's taking care of things and this family around you. 
Well, a lot of Beethoven's worked in the way that it's the father, the mother, the kids, right? It's the nuclear family, as we often talk about. But there's a problem with Abraham. God picked this guy. He's like, you're going to have so many descendants. It's going to be crazy. As many as the stars in the sky. You're going to be blessed and become a blessing to others. But the problem with this was Abraham's wife, Sarah, couldn't have kids. You see an issue there, right? You're going to have so many descendants. It's going to be awesome. No kids. What I love about Abraham and Sarah was they didn't take this and get defeated by it. They struggled with it, and you see it in there, and God eventually did allow Sarah to have a child. But what Abraham and his wife did was they said, well, if that's true, that God's going to make us a blessing to so many, and we're going to have so many descendants, said, why wait? Uh, Abraham, I think of him as human crazy glue. Everywhere he went, everyone he came in contact with, it's like he just stuck him to himself. Come on, be a part of my Beidav, be a part of my family. Everywhere he went, you saw him loving people and not keeping family within the bounds of it's this type, this model, this nuclear kind of family thing. So much so, I want to read what ended up happening with, with this family. In, in Genesis 14, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot, he's living in a, a city called Sodom. It's not a good place to live. Uh, we found, find that out later. Uh, but the city ends up getting defeated by a bunch of kings who sweep through the valley. And Lot is taken into captivity with his wife and his kids. And Abraham says, no way, this is not going to happen. So what happens here in, in Genesis chapter 14, it says, when Avram, when he heard that his relative had been taken captive, right, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household. This is a guy who has zero kids, right? 318 trained men born in his household, and he went in pursuit of them as far as the city of Dan. Uh, during the night, he divided his men to attack them. He routed them, pursuing them as far as a place called Hoba, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Do you see what just happened? Abraham, this one guy with his wife, their family has 318 trained men who can go to battle. This is not old people. That isn't including them. It's not including children. It's not including women. 318 trained men. He has a city that has become his Beidav, his family. Wherever he goes, he finds people who can't help themselves. He finds people who need to be part of what God's doing here, and he brings them in. Isn't that a cool picture? That sure shoots my idea of what a family is, blows it out of the water, right? Because this is such a bigger picture than what God is looking for. Some of you in here are single right now, and you wrestle with that, maybe. Maybe you, you're wondering, God, why didn't you send me a wife, a husband? Why, why am I alone? And what this tells me is God's got a bigger picture of family than probably what you think. God has a place for you. And we're going to look at what that looks like and what that means, but God wants to be at the center. He wants to be right in the middle of it. He wants to bring definition. He wants to bring light and beauty to what your family looks like. But here's the thing, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> It's going to be challenging because it's going to require you to give up your ideas of things. Uh, the first thing that I see God really trying to teach me and tr teach us through this is to place Jesus at the center. Okay, no matter what, place Jesus at the center. It's where he belongs. We talked about abiding in Christ and how even on your little graphic on your, on your weight sheet there, it's at the center of all of these other spheres. And the reason why is that's what's going to give definition and meaning to all of the rest of it. Jesus belongs at the center. Here's the trick, though. 
Family, it's so tempting to put the family at the center. It's so tempting to have everything revolve around our activities we're doing and, and what I'm doing. And, but the problem is when I put family at the center, it breaks everything. And my relationship with the people in my family are going to be broken as well. Uh, one, one of my stories with this, so many of them, by the way, I'm standing up here not as an expert, but as someone who's really trying to learn this because family is hard. Uh, when, when my wife was in her grad school and I was working, that's what I started to do. I said, okay, she's putting her nose to the grindstone, getting her school done. I am going to work and provide. I'm going to come home and I'm going to do the housework and I'm going to cook and clean and all that. And that's what we did for about four years was that. But what I started to do is I said, okay, that's really important. I don't really have time for my small group anymore at my church. I, I you know, Sundays, oh man, that's the like one day I have to rest. I started to back away from all of these things that God had been calling me to. And I started to say, you know what, no, 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 my relationship with my wife, that has to be the priority, that has to be first. Uh, eventually stopped really engaging with God and found myself walking away from him. And I, I've shared some of that before, but this was one of the catalysts was saying, I want my family to be right at the center. Guess what that did to my marriage? Do you think it was fantastic? It was awful, right? Like, I am so glad that God brought us through those four years that felt like 24 years, Right. He made it work, <laughs> and we survived, but it was so difficult because what I had done was I had removed Jesus from the picture, and it didn't create more unity and harmony between my wife and I. It didn't make me have a, a heart more full of love and compassion and patience for my wife. What it did was it made me become more and more self-centered and self-focused and focus on what can I get out of this relationship and marriage? Is my wife actually doing her part? And what it did was it totally torpedoed my, my marriage for those years. And thank goodness that God got a hold of me again and changed it all. But here I had all these great intentions. Oh, family relationships are important. And yes, God says they are important. But I made them the thing. And when I made them the thing, everything broke. Your family was not meant to be at the center ever. Jesus' math, I, I think of it as like fuzzy math, how he uses it. I mean, who else takes five loaves and two fishes and feeds 5,000 people, right? That's one example of it. Another example, though, is he says, put me at the center, prioritize me, allocate time to me, to Jesus, and everything else will be enriched. The time that you have with people will be so much better, right? And I'm like, how does that work? I'm taking time away from those things for you. But it works because God changes everything about how I approach family and all these relationships with people. When God's at the center, things thrive. When God's peripheral to what's going on, everything is going to start to die. Everything's going to start to become broken. That doesn't mean that things won't be broken with Jesus in the center because the other people have their parts to play. But what he'll do is he'll give me the ability to endure. He'll give me the peace and the patience to get through the season in a healthy way. Jesus wants to be at the center. So how in the world do I put Jesus at the center of my family? That sounds easier said than done. Um, I think about my relationship with my wife when, uh, when I came back to God and I was like, yes, we're doing this thing. I really struggled with figuring out how to be a good husband with her. And the reason why was she, not everything I did was something that she responded well to. One of the things that it talks about husbands doing is washing their wives with the water of God's word, right? With this, washing with the water of the word. Um, turns out my wife really didn't want a bath at the time, right? Like that, that wasn't what she was into the way that I was doing it. And I was getting all frustrated, right? But then God said, hey, you're, you're trying one way to make this work, right? You're, you're just trying one single method. 
let's get a little creative here. So I started writing sticky notes. I'd, I'd do my reading in the morning, and I'd write down a verse that God had highlighted, maybe how it reminded me of her or all that. I, I'd write these sticky notes, and I'd stick them on the garage door because I'm a morning person, and I'm gone at like 5 a.m., right? Stick them on the garage door, and then they'd disappear. I'd come home, and it'd be gone, right? And just like elves at night or something just absconding with my sticky notes. And then one day I forgot to write one, and came home, and my wife came home, and she's like, did it fall off? Where'd it go, right? Like she hadn't said anything to me, and then she's like, these really matter. I just had to be creative about it. I had to figure out a way, how do I love my wife well here and do it in a way that is going to be meaningful to her as well? So sometimes we have to be creative. Get into the word together. How do we do that? I don't know. Figure out a way. Uh, I love Deuteronomy's gonna talk about wherever you go, whatever you're doing, talk about the word, bring up the word, infuse it into everything you do. That's a way of putting God at the center. Another one's prayer. Have any of you ever tried to pray with your spouse, spouse before? Has that been incredibly awkward for any of you ever? Yep, me too. When I first started doing it, it was very strange. And um, I wish I had videotaped it because you all would get a good laugh out of it, right? It was, it was odd. But the thing is, I realize this is so important because what we're doing is we're inviting God to be in our relationship. We're giving him a place of prominence. And the more I did it, the easier it got and more straightforward it got. And every time we spent time together in prayer, God would just bring us into alignment with him. Praying with my wife became so important and praying for her as well, just infusing everything with prayer as much as I could. I need to invest energy into it and I have to really lead the way and and be willing to go for it even though I'm going to make a mess and I'm going to be awkward and weird because that's who I am, right? God can still use it and work through it. But the wrong thing to do is to do nothing, to be passive, which is, by the way, my go-to. So God really has stretched me a lot in this and is continuing to do that. If you're single, a lot of this might seem like this doesn't apply to me. My encouragement to you is build it. Build the family. Who do you have in your life who you can invite in and have those kind of deeper conversations with. Maybe, maybe I have some friends in college. When I was in college, I did have friends, and I'd bring them in. We'd do a Bible study together and talk about God in our lives, and really that's a lot of what small groups are for here, the connect groups that we lead. If you're single, build that sort of community and that family because you need it, and God doesn't want you to be alone. So place Jesus at the center. He, the only way your family is going to work well is if he's right at the, at the center of it. A second thing I see is follow God's example. Here's what I love about God. He doesn't just tell us a bunch of things to do, like do this, do that, do that, right? Of course he does. He does it because he loves us and he knows the best way to live these lives. But he also shows us how to do it. One is in the person of Jesus. Another one just is in how God refers to himself is supposed to give us some hints. What do you suppose is probably the most, most common way that God likes to refer to himself in scripture? It's God the Father. Father imagery is all over the place. God wants us to recognize he's a father. He's a parent. So if I'm a parent, which I'm not, and that's why I struggle with some of this conversation. I I don't have too much to speak into this, but as a parent, God says, parenting is hard. It's difficult. The reason why I know is because I made it difficult for my parents, right? Like I, I knew how to push all the buttons. It's hard. But I look at God. He says, I'm your father and look at my example. Imagine, if you will, uh, you have kids and they can't do anything right ever. Anyone ever felt that way before? Right? Like Anyone have teenagers? Or, yeah, <laughs> they can't ever do anything right. It feels that way. They're always making mistakes. Imagine that the parent comes and does everything perfectly and says, like, see, see, it's totally possible that you can do this right. That could have been God's attitude when he came down in the person of Jesus. 
and he lived the perfect sinless life, never once gave in to anything. He could have said, see, what's your problem? I can do this, can't you? But instead what God did was he clothed himself with compassion and humility, and he came down and he died for us to say, I love you so much. Look at the patience that God has, the kindness that he has that leads us all to repentance. He says, that's what it looks like to be a parent. Watch me. And I love how God balances everything perfectly. Love and grace and patience and goodness and kindness. And at the same time, discipline and not letting us get away with things, right? And conviction and leading us toward a better way to live. God balances it all without getting frustrated, without throwing things, right? Without losing his temper. God does it with so much patience. If I want to learn how to be a good parent, I've got such a great example in scripture of God himself. I can follow his example. How about marriage? Marriage is difficult, right? Because half the time I feel like I'm living with my best friend and then the other half I'm like, there's an enemy at the gates, right? It's kind of the combination of the two. Marriage is so hard and so difficult. What does God have to say? And I love in, jot this down, I'm not gonna read it, I'm gonna quote parts of it, but Ephesians 5, God's gonna talk about what it looks like to be a husband and a wife. He says, husbands, love your wives. How should you love her? As Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. That's the kind of love God's calling husbands to have for their wives, where I am self-sacrificial. It's not my priorities and what matters to me, but it's actually her that I care about so deeply. He gave himself up for the, the church, right? He washed her with the pure water of the word to present her to himself, pure and spotless and blameless, right? Without wrinkle or blemish, but a radiant church. Hey, women, how many of you want, would want to be married to that guy, right? Like, that's, that's hard to say no to, right? That's the picture that God gives us of what marriage looks like. Just look at Jesus. Look at the way he loved his disciples. Look at the way he died on the cross for you. It says, wives, right? Submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And there's a lot of conversation we had there. We're not talking about domineering and all those sorts of things. But the idea is, The picture should be Jesus and the church, how Jesus just absolutely is wild about his church and is willing to do everything he needs to in order to bring her to a place of health. And the church is saying, we're going to work in conjunction and unity together, and I'm going to submit to that leadership when I need to. The picture's all there. God says, look at my, the image that I'm trying to give you. That's going to be what's going to work. Follow God's example He doesn't leave us alone. He wants to show us what it looks like to be good husbands, wives, and parents, and kids as well. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me here? How do we know what God's like? Right here, God's word. We've got to be in his word. It's not a boring, dusty book. There's a lot of hard things to read in there, right? It's not a boring, dusty book because it's actually God saying, hey, you wanna know what I'm like? Here I am. Look at this. This is what I have to say about myself. This is how I interact with human history. You want to know who I am and how I parent and how I love? Here it is. So get in God's word. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be awesome. Uh, the final thing that I see here, and this is from Abraham's example, is bring in the lonely. Okay? Bring in the lonely. I, I, I love Psalm 68. It's just a really powerful powerful statement about God, okay? Let's, let's start with what God thinks about this. This is Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. 
You see God's heart there? The widows, the fatherless, right? the orphans. He loves people who don't have anyone to defend them. He sees them, he knows them, and he wants them close to him. He's going to take the lonely, and some of you in this room are probably feeling lonely, and he sets them in families. That's God's heart. And here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, God has not only called us, but empowered us by his spirit to be his representative on earth. When we see this is how God's like, that should be an indication to us to say, that's how I am called to be as well. How can we be that kind of person? Well, one of them is it's easy to fall into the trap of too much stranger danger, right? There's people out there. There's a lot of weird stuff going on, a lot of weird people out there. I want to show you two images of what a family can look like, okay? Two images. The first image has to do with, uh, is one way to approach things, and you'll see it on on the screen here in a moment here. This is one picture of family, okay? I love the spears poking out from in between the shields and all that, right? Like, stay away from us or we'll cut you, right? This is not going to go well. Stay away. You're keeping the big bad world out, okay? Number one, the world is big and bad. There's lots of issues out there and lots of wrong there. But if we're going to isolate and become a fortress, what's going to happen is we're not actually going to reach anyone with the good news of Jesus. If my family is, we'll, we'll kind of circle up and make sure to keep everything out. We're missing the picture of the gospel and all of scripture in general. And I know that's challenging because there's a lot of gross stuff going on out there. We have to learn better ways to engage. And the second image really is going to show that this is called a mission. This is a Spanish-style mission in California. A mission was a place that was oftentimes outside of the city limits, uh, but I love that cities grew up around them. But the mission was outside the city limits, and it was a place where people could go for healing. They had medicine there for education, right? They, they, a lot of times these missions, they preserved literature that was destroyed when people wiped out cities. Uh, they, it was a place where the poor could go and find help, where mothers without, without fathers who are just about to give birth to their babies, they can go and have a community that will help them care for their child. A mission was a true city on a hill. When people looked at it, it was hope and it was light and it's someplace they wanted to be. That's the picture of a family that Jesus wants us to have. Not a fortress, but a mission, a place where people can come and find Jesus. And I love Jesus' own example in all of this. He got in trouble so much. Like, he got in all kinds of trouble from the, the religious people. And one of the biggest complaints they had was the kind of company he kept. It was the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners and all of those people. And they had a plan of being a fortress and were keeping the big bad world out. Jesus said, the son of man, myself, I came to seek and save the lost. These are the people I came for. And what I love is that as he brought the lonely in, as he gave them a place where they could come and meet God, they were completely transformed. You see people like selling, selling everything they have, righting the wrongs, making amends for things that they've done. It's really powerful whatever, what ends up happening when we live like a mission, like Jesus did. Uh, some examples of this, one I think of is adoption. Did you know that Christian people are more than twice as likely to adopt children as anyone else? That's powerful. It's because we see this mission of Jesus. Later on in the book of James, James is going to say, look, religion that God the Father accepts as pure, pure and blameless is this, that you look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. I'm not a fortress. I'm also not allowing myself to go the way of the world. But I'm caring about those who can't care for themselves, the lonely. Another thing I think of when I was a kid, uh, we had Thanksgiving meals 
well, yearly, I think most people do, right? But all of our family lived across the United States in Louisiana and in Wyoming and Montana. And so we started having Thanksgivings and our parents would talk to us and ask us, who do you know who has nowhere to go? Like in your class, your kids and parents. And meanwhile, on church at church on Sunday and my dad at his work, they'd be scouring and asking, hey, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And every time someone said, I'm just going to stay at home, they'd say, no, you're not. Come over. We had an eclectic, bizarre mix of people every time. But what happened is we started to build these relationships. We'd have 20 plus people, none of them related, all just there for food and and relationship, really. And I love that my parents modeled that, that picture of bringing the lonely in. And that meant so much to people who had nowhere to go. Uh, another application I think of is we have groups around here. Leading or hosting a group is an awesome way to do it. There are a lot of people out there like, I have no clue what to do or how to do it, but I'm in. I want to learn because... This is a place where the lonely can come and find family. It's one of the best opportunities we have. If you're lonely, that's one of the best ways to get connected with family, with people who care about you. See, Jesus has a very different picture of family. That might be totally different from anything you've ever heard, right? That actually Jesus wants to be at the center. That he wants to use you and your family to reach the world in a powerful way. See, Jesus' ways are different. But hopefully what you're recognizing through this series and a new thing is that Jesus' ways are so much better. They broaden our vision. They enable us to see people we normally wouldn't. And it gives hope to the world. I know many of you in the room are very challenged by this this idea. Many of you say, yeah, but there are scary people out there and I need to exercise wisdom. Yeah, you do. But that doesn't mean that you close yourself off to everyone, right? That doesn't mean that you don't, in a moment of bold faith, take a risk on someone. God is wanting to move you to a new place, to take you to a place where your family is his family too, where he's the one teaching you to lead and guide and love your family. And he wants to do it today. It's going to take a lot for sure. But what I've learned, even though I'm in the mix, right in the mix of this process, and I'm still learning and I still fail all the time when it comes to family, is the more I trust Jesus, the more I absolutely love my wife, the more that I want to be with the people God's brought into family with me, the more... Jesus actually knew what he was talking about from the beginning, right? That's what he wants to do with your family too. He wants your family to be a place of sanctuary for people. Some of you in the room, you don't know Jesus and all of this is a foreign concept because you don't have him living in your life. His spirit isn't guiding you. My encouragement to you is he wants you to be part of his family too. He doesn't want you to be lonely anymore. He died on that cross. It says to bring those who are far away near. If that's you, my encouragement today is to say yes to Jesus, to stop running, to stop hiding, to say, yes, I want in. If that's you, your first step is baptism. It's a symbolic act of saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you with everything I've got. If that's you, head to the back during the the next song here. We've got people with shirt shorts and towels who would love to help you take that step. But let's pray. God, I love the fact that you have the best plan every time. That I try my best and I get nowhere. And then you try your best and it it leads to total revolution. God, I love that you have the right plan and I love that you love our families. Help us to be men and women who put you at the center of our families, who are not content with a halfway marriage, with halfway parenting, who are not content to let the years go by without bringing you right into the center of it all. God, I believe that you want to use every person in here, every family, every lonely person connecting into families for the power of your kingdom and the glory of your name. God, we, we surrender. 
we ask that you would come and do the miraculous in our families. We love you, God. We give you everything, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand. We're going to continue our worship. If your next step is baptism, head to the back right now.